Please turn with me in your Bibles. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation. Uh, We are in Revelation chapter 2. Today we will look at verses 1 through 7, the first of the seven individual messages to to these seven churches within the broader letter of the book of Revelation. Uh, these, These letters are built upon the foundation of the vision that we looked at yesterday, the vision of the of the ascended and glorified Christ who is sovereign and in control over all of his churches. In fact, Jesus, as he introduces himself to these churches, will pick pieces of the imagery that we looked at yesterday in Revelation 1, verses uh, 9 through 20. Uh, He will pick pieces of that imagery to describe himself to each of the churches in a way that they need to know him at the time. And as he makes promises at the end of each letter, he will, he will pick up imagery from the end of the book of Revelation when, when he returns and, and, and forms the new heavens and the new earth out of what is here. And so the promises that we look at will, 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 be, will be taken from the end of the book of Revelation. These letters are given to us in a geographical pattern, but they are also given to us in a thematic pattern. Uh, the first two, ch- the first church and the last church find themselves in dire spiritual danger, being threatened to have their lampstand or their status as a church removed from them. The, the second church and the sixth church find themselves faithful with no criticism from the Savior. And the middle three churches find themselves in some mixture of faithfulness and danger. And keep in mind that not only are these messages given to seven individual churches who had real difficulty and and real faithfulness within their context, but it's also given to us and it gives us a a large picture, an overall picture of the church itself, the church around the world. Most of the churches in this world have some mixture of failure and faithfulness within them. And God speaks to us through these words to call us to be more faithful to him, to strive to be a a godly church that finds itself as as church two and church six do as faithful churches. But understanding that we are all, uh, all churches are in need of being called to faithfulness. And so as we As we have that in mind, let us look to this message that Jesus gives, this specific message that he gives to the church in Ephesus. He says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, those that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you do have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
Let us pray. God and Savior, you have loved us with an everlasting love, a love that showed in Jesus dying for us while we were still sinners. Teach us of the love that we had for you at the beginning of our life with you and grow within us a love for our neighbors who need to know your love. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as John put his letter with the messenger on the ship, uh, he would, that messenger would most likely have landed in the port of the city of Ephesus. Uh, not only did Ephesus have an active and, and major port in the Roman Empire, but also uh, several of the roads uh, within the Roman Empire crossed there in Ephesus. And so it was a center of commerce and trade within Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey um, of the day. Also, Ephesus had within it a, a major temple to the goddess Artemis, excuse me, or its Roman name is Diana. And this temple was one of the wonders, the, the, the wonder, the, what was it, the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the temptation for Ephesian Christians would be to compromise and to mix their Christian worship with the cultural beliefs and activities there in Ephesus. And then as we near the end of the first century, temples to Julius Caesar, to, to Titus Caesar, and to Domitian Caesar, who was the ruling Caesar, likely the ruling Caesar at the time of, of Revelation being written, were built as centers of Caesar worship. So if you wanted to be successful in the city of Ephesus, not only would you have to declare your allegiance to Artemis or Diana, but you would also have to declare Caesar is Lord. And so it is that context to which we see this, this letter, this message to the church in Ephesus. And in the world today, um, we many times have to have the same temptations that the Ephesian Christians did. We also have a temptation uh, to regarding our expressions of truth in our expressions of love. Do we value truth over love or do we value love over truth? And in today's passage, we see that Jesus answers that question, which do we value more? Do we value truth or do we value love? He answers that question with a resounding yes. And he gives us a formula for bringing balance when we err more to the side of truth than we do to the side of love. And that formula is remember Repent and recover. First, we need to answer the question, what did Ephesus get right? What did the Ephesians Christians get right? And what they got right is their zeal for truth. Jesus, through John, opens this passage um, after he de describes who he is as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, that picture of the being that John saw, the resurrected and glorified Christ who, who secures the future, who secures the hope of the Christian church in his strong right hand and walks among those the churches, knowing what is going on in those churches, knowing where they are faithful, knowing where they are failing. And he says, because of that, because I am actively walking and active among the churches, I know your deeds. And you go about those deeds there is, is hard work, a, a toil that they were about. 
Their hard work is, is goes beyond toil to a work that you put your whole self into the point, to the point that you are exhausted. And he knows their perseverance in the face of persecution. He knows their endurance in the face of false teachers. And he says, your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance come in the form of testing false teachers. When I graduated from seminary and began the process of moving toward ordination in the ARP church, I was handed a paper exam that focused on my knowledge of English Bible facts, on, on my knowledge of church history and systematic theology and my, my personal philosophy of witness. That exam came to me in an electronic format that was four pages long. It went back to the chairman of the committee that oversaw my exam as a document that was 50 pages long. Then I spent an hour before the committee being asked questions in areas in my exam that they thought I was weak in in my theology or my knowledge of the Bible or my personal philosophy of ministry. And then I spent another hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half before all of Presbytery all the ministers and a good number of elders, including my father in Florida Presbytery that had free reign to ask me any theological, any church history, any English Bible, any philosophy of ministry question that they wanted. And I had to answer off the cuff. All to make sure that I was true to what I professed to believe so that I would only proclaim truth to the people of God in God's church. That's a picture we have of the Ephesians here as, as preachers, as ministers would come around to them claiming to be sent from God. They would, they would examine them to make sure that what they proclaimed was the truth of the scriptures, was the truth that, that the, the 13, that, excuse me, the 12 apostles had proclaimed, that the Old Testament writers and authors had proclaimed. They wanted to make sure that they had teachers who knew the truth of God and were not afraid to proclaim the truths of God. And Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for sniffing out these false teachers and rejecting them. Now, if somebody came here today and began teaching things that were not true, would you know? Would you know to examine them? Would you know what to ask them to make sure that what they believed, what they taught is the truth? Sometimes false teaching is very much in your face, so blatant that it's hard to ignore. Sometimes you'll have a minister come and say, you know, Jesus wasn't truly God. And you'll know right away that that is something that, that, that comes from the pit of hell and smells like smoke. But other times false teaching can be subtle. And it can sneak in little by little. You are called to know the truth well enough to be able to sniff out false teachers. The second area, not just false teachers, but the second area that they are commended on is in the area of cultural compromise. Verse six talks about the Nicolaitans. We don't know a lot about them. There's uh, other than um, one other letter. I believe it's the letter to Pergamum. It's the only other time that they are mentioned. And we don't have a lot from the, the church documents of the late first century, early second century. But from what we see later on in this chapter, we see that, that what they 
what they taught, the Nicolaitans, centered around compromising with the culture in areas of worship and sexual sin. Do you ever catch yourself sometimes saying, you know, I know what God said in his word, but, you know, this is the 21st century and and God just needs to get with the times because it doesn't work that way anymore. We don't worship that way anymore. We don't, you know, if we're going to get along with our culture, we've got to jettison some of our old fashioned beliefs. Jesus, through John, commends the Ephesian church for for hating that cultural compromise. There's two things there that we need to understand. Number one, it's okay to hate false teaching. Number two, it's not okay to hate false teachers. God hates the false teaching, but he still offers grace and salvation to the false teacher. As one author put it, it's okay to hate the heresy, but not the heretic. The the church today, I believe, needs to cultivate a love for and a commitment to truth in the middle of a world that proclaims falsehood and compromise. What God has said is true. It is true for all time. The Ephesian church was committed to truth. But for all of their zeal for truth, the Ephesians had a problem. And it's a problem that Jesus says that he holds against them or he will hold them to account for. And the problem is this, in in the light of their zeal for truth, they have lost their first love. Now, neither John nor Jesus expand on what is meant here by first love, but we can get an idea by looking at other scriptures. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, Paul reminds Timothy, who served the church in Ephesus after Paul left, to aim that the aim of the church should be love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Jesus himself in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31, when being asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says this, he said, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the love. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this: love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. In their zeal for truth, they had lost their love for God. They they loved the truth more than they loved God. They did not love God with all of their heart. They did not love God with all of their thoughts or their work or their desires or their needs or their very souls. This love for God should grow so big that all other all other loves in our lives seem as though we hate that object of love. What's the what's the what's the thing on this earth that you love the most? Does your love for God so Is your love for God so much bigger that it looks as though you hate that thing? But this love for God also goes hand in hand with a love for neighbor. We cannot, you cannot claim to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your might without that love overflowing into service for those whom God has placed in your path. In Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Jesus says he will come and he will welcome those who fed the hungry, who gave water to the thirsty, who welcomed the stranger into their lives, who clothed the naked and visited the sick and imprisoned. 
Our love for God and our zeal for his truth should change how we view the world and the people in the world. And for the church, this combination of remembering our first love and our zeal for truth should show itself in a passion for outreach and evangelism. Think about this. You and I are so convinced that God offers salvation to sinful rebels people who deserve hell and damnation. We are so convinced that God gives salvation freely that we give up our time on a Sunday morning to come to church. I get it. I want to sleep in on Sundays some mornings. There's things that I could be doing. There's things that you could be doing that you find it more important to be in this place because you know that here the words of life are proclaimed. But you keep that message to yourself. You don't love God and the world enough to share the message of salvation. You have the light of the spirit flowing out of you, seeking to draw fallen sinners out of the darkness and into life giving light. And you put a bushel, a metal bucket over the light. Because, you know, I'm just not sure they're ready to handle God's glorious truth. They're a bunch of sinners. They're just going to mess everything up. And for many of us, I'm not talking about strangers. I'm talking about people who are part of your family or your friend circle that you claim to love. And Jesus says he holds that against us. What do you do if God is convicting you to rediscover, to re-embrace that first love? He tells us in here, first off, he says, remember, remember from where you have fallen. Now, most likely, John through Jesus through John is calling you to remember your love for God and others that you had when you were first brought to a believing knowledge of salvation that Jesus offers. How many of you ever had a new job before? And, and how many for how many of you was that job like the best thing ever? I have never had a job like this. I will never have a job like this again. I am going to be here at this job for the next 400 years. It is so awesome. It is so good. And you're telling everybody about how awesome your new job is. How do you feel in 90 days or maybe a year if you're fortunate? It's just another job, isn't it? It's just another place to show up on Monday through Friday. And hopefully they pay you enough to pay your bills because, you know, Ugh, this job's just like every other one. I hate it. It's like that with Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus opened your eyes to the point where you felt that burden of sin and guilt. Leave your shoulders. You, you, you felt the freedom from bondage. You felt the freedom from the guilt and shame. You felt the freedom from always looking over your shoulder, waiting for God's judgment to fall. And man, you wanted to tell everybody about it. And you didn't care how bad you messed it up because somewhere in Mark, like we learned in Sunday school today, God said the spirit will let you speak. And, and buddy, you gave them everything you knew. And then after a time, you got beaten down a little bit. You got pushback from those who, who thought maybe you were a little crazy. Man, this is scary to talk to people because they might reject me. And so you became focused on truth 
You came focused on the scriptures, but you forgot that that's a call to also go out and share. And so Jesus says, remember what it was like when you first felt that freedom. Remember what it was like when my grace first poured over you and changed your heart. And because the word remember in scripture is more than just an intellectual exercise, it's a word that also demands action. We're called to repent. For the child of God, repentance is the first response we should have when convicted of anything that Jesus will hold against us. Repentance is turning away from the patterns of sin and a turning toward that which God expects from you. Repentance is realizing that our desires or actions are offensive to God and turning toward new actions that bring God honor and bring God glory. When you remember what it felt like the first time that love poured over you from Jesus, and you remember what you did because of that love, we repent of the fact that we have given up our love for Jesus. And then we recover. We go back and do the things that we do before What did the Ephesians do before? Well, actually, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse 15. Actually, if you read through all of Ephesians, you 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 feel Paul's excitement and passion for everything the Ephesians are doing because of their first love. And he says this in Ephesians 1:15. he says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving Thanks for you. Paul was so overwhelmed by how the Ephesian Christians expressed their love for Jesus and their love for each other that he could not stop giving God thanks for what he was doing in their midst. Jesus is calling the Ephesian Christians here in Revelation to turn from their hatred for the lost and recover the zeal they had at first. And he's calling you to that as well. Many of you have decades of knowledge about God and salvation that the Spirit will bring to mind as you need if you would just find the love for others that you once had and you didn't have the knowledge. Jesus calls us to remember, to repent, and to recover that first love, and he's serious about this call. He said, if the Ephesian church chooses not to remember, not to repent, not to recover that first love, he will remove their lampstand. The source of light in Ephesus would be removed and taken elsewhere. All the zeal for truth will mean nothing if the Ephesians cannot recover their first love. We're reminded that Jesus promises to build and to sustain and to protect his Church. In the sense we get here, what we are told here is that when the church and the church members lose their love, the implication here is that they cease to be his church. And he will not build someone else's church. He will only build his church. So he calls the Ephesian Christians to remember, to repent, and to recover. They have a zeal for truth. They've lost their first love. And then he promises them this. He promises them life eternal. In our last verse today, in verse 7, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That that links us to the words of 
Jesus' parables. It also links us to the words of Isaiah and Jeremiah that there are going to be some who will hear, some who will not, and find, and they will find, those that don't hear will find these words confusing. But he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, to him who who is victorious in the battle, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden for their sin, God places a guard so that they cannot access the tree of life. And then in the opening verses of of Revelation 22, we see a river that flows from the throne of God as it flows through all creation, bringing life to creation on either side of the banks is a tree that, that bears 12 fruits a year, one every month. And all the nations who are there in the new heavens and new earth will come to the tree. They will eat and they will have life eternal with God in paradise with him. That the garden has grown to be a, a city that is very much like a garden that brings life to the whole of creation, to the whole of the world, the universe. If you remember, if you repent, if you recover your lost love, God will give you access to eternal life in his presence. Those promises at the beginning of Revelation 21 become the internal inheritance of those who overcome. We see two sources of our conquering. First, our actions. We conquer through the threefold action that we take that we've looked at. Remember, repent and recover. Secondly, though, And this is the glory of this promise. Those actions are rooted in Scripture reading that we read earlier. We conquer because Jesus has already conquered for us. The world will come against you, but do not fear the world, for I have overcome. I have conquered the world. That love that you think, oh great, Ike's just told me, I've got to work to love Jesus. I've got to work to love Jesus. How can I love Jesus? I'm just going to try harder to love Jesus. No, brothers and sisters, you don't try harder to love Jesus. Part of that remembering is remembering what he did for you, where he opened your heart, he changed your heart so that you do love. That love is already there for you. You don't have to chase after it. You don't have to work for it. Jesus has changed your heart so that you love him, that you desire to belong to him, body and soul, that you desire to love your neighbor as yourself. Start by praying for the love to be yours. Lord, I love you. Help my lack of love. If I can paraphrase that prayer from Mark. Seek your first love from the one who loved you enough to die for sinners. And when you do, when when Jesus does answer that prayer to, to help you remember, to help you repent and to help you recover, he reminds you that eternal life is yours, your inheritance. So what did the Ephesian church get right? They were zealous for truth in the face of false teaching and the face of compromise. What did the Ephesian church get wrong? They forgot love for God and for others that expresses itself in a passion for outreach and evangelism. You and I live, we work, we play in a world that desperately needs truth. The temptation is twofold. On the one hand, we may be tempted to compromise the truth. As we'll see later on in these letters and these messages to the churches, we'll see that that can lead to the death of the church as well. 
But on the other hand, our temptation is to speak truth without love. To use it as a bludgeon. To beat the fallen into submission. Later on in Ephesians, from where we read earlier, in Ephesians 4.14, Paul calls us to a better path. We are to speak truth to friends, to family, and to acquaintances around us, but we are to do so in love. If you find yourself to be a lion for the truth, make sure that you haven't abandoned love in truth speaking. If you find yourself to be compromising truth for love, well, that's not really love. Timothy Keller says it this way. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. However, truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we really cannot hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked both by radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The truth, brothers and sisters, is that you are far more sinful and fallen than you could ever think or imagine. And we have that truth to declare to the world. But the flip side of that truth coin is that as the children of God, you are also far more loved, far more forgiven, far more embraced by the Father than you could ever know, than you could ever think, than you could ever imagine. The world needs to know the truth. but They also need to know the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as you go out into the world, proclaim the truth in love so that they can hear, so that they can know, and so that like you, they can inherit eternal life. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you that you have not pulled any punches when you tell us the truth about us. Lord, the light of your word, the light of your spirit shines your holiness into our heart to show us where we are far, far, far from holy. And yet, Lord, you do not leave us with just the truth. You also sent love. For we know that God loves us. For for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so just as you have proclaimed truth and love into our hearts, we ask that you would give us the strength, the wisdom, the knowledge, and the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim not only truth, but to proclaim love to our culture, to not compromise with our culture thinking that it is a loving thing to do, but that we love them enough to proclaim truth to them. And Lord, not only use the Spirit to give give us the words, but use the Spirit to change hearts so that more and more people can can come to know that first love that many of us have forgotten. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, God will bring people into your path, people who need to hear truth but need to hear it in love. And know that He will give you the Spirit to give you the right words and he will give you the love that you need to speak to those people. And as you go this week seeking to honor God, seeking to speak truth, seeking to speak love, take this blessing upon you. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord 
We pray with the saints, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.